This reading is from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. The one who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing their sheaves with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together as James reads our gospel reading. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 12th chapter, beginning at the 20th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves their life loses it, and whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, they must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor them. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please pray with me. Father, restore to us again the joy of your salvation, that we may rejoice in you in waiting, even in suffering, even in our own tears. We pray in the name of him who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, last summer in June, during the season 16 of the reality TV show, America's Got Talent, Jane Marchevsky, also known as her stage name Nightbird, which is spelled with an E at the end of that, she went for her audition and garnered national attention for her gripping performance of her original song that she titled, It's Okay. Simon Cowell, the infamous hard-to-impress judge, he was so moved he hit the golden buzzer, automatically moving Nightbird towards uh, the contest live shows. Now that YouTube clip of her performance currently has over 41 million views online. Now in an interview, Marchevsky explained how she came up with her stage name, Nightbird. She said this, 
I woke up three nights in a row, the same dream, all these birds singing outside. It was almost like a dream within a dream. I'd wake up in the night with birds singing out my window. The third day, I woke up, went to the window, and saw there were birds. It was so profound, this image of being able to sing through a dark time, even when there's no proof that the sun is coming, to sing in anticipation of the dawn, even if you can't prove it. Marchevsky then disclosed before performing her now popular audition that she had multiple progressive cancers in her lungs, in her liver, and in her spine. And even then, she stood up, went on the stage, and sang her song in the midst of the darkness of her night. Now, our psalm today is someone singing in the midst of a very dark time, not only for themselves personally, but on behalf, as it were, of, her, of their own people, of an entire country, even when there's no proof that they could see that the sun is coming up, singing in anticipation of the dawn, even though they could not prove it or guarantee it for themselves or for their own people. So I invite us to turn to Psalm 126 in your Bibles or apps or to that blue Bible in front of you to page 572, Psalm 126. Now, the psalm was likely sung during the festal pilgrimage of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. That coincided with the grain harvest season. Now, that's seven weeks long, approximately. It was a time of gladness and gratitude for God's provision, and it culminated, culminated in this great feast in Jerusalem, when each pilgrim would bring with them loaves of bread made from the first harvest uh, before the temple. And I've as we've read this psalm, the psalms adopted this grain harvest motif of sowing and reaping at the end of the song. Well, but of course, despite the joy and vibrancy of harvest time, Psalm 126 is not all that happy. It's not. There's, you, could, you could hear the sadness mixed and mingled with the gladness. You could see tears dribbling down a smiling yet weary face. It's a song that's sung, actually, in the darkness of night. Now, this song is divided into two parts, two equal parts. The first half is about remembrance, and the second half is about request as a prayer. Remembrance on the one hand and request on the second. So first, remembrance. Like Marchevsky's dream of nightbirds singing in the dark... The psalmist here sings in the midst of their sadness, in the darkness of their lives, as one remembering, dreaming about the, the happy moments when God rescued His people. In verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream, like those who dream. That clause about dreaming, it, that's a very common ancient Hebrew idiom. And that clause has, two, has double meaning, it has two meanings. The first meaning evokes this sense of delight, right? Dreams can give someone. You've probably experienced this, a, a sense of delight. Now, having had dreams, perhaps, that are so vivid and pleasant, and even though you could not remember every single detail of that dream, you're, you're left awake in bed or up in the couch from a nap with this lingering sense of delight. 
this nostalgia or longing for something you just can't comprehend. You don't know why you felt that or how you've come to feel that. Perhaps you've woken up with a tear down in one eye and you're smiling. The psalmist is here. It's, they're savoring this lingering sense of delight and longing as though waking from this pleasant dream, dreaming about the testimonies of God's salvation in ancient Scripture, remembering stories they've heard from their parents or even their grandparents of God's acts of power, or perhaps even bringing up to memory what they've encountered firsthand of, of divine miracles in their life. These were stories and memories that seemed too good to be true. Right? That this main and primary story of an entire country of people traversing an ocean on dry ground, sandwiched by two towers of water, the divine presence visually beside them as a bright cloud in a pillar of fire, their enslavers thrown into the sea and brought to nothing by the invisible strong arm of God at work in the staff and rod of Moses. These stories and memories seemed like fairy tales of these happily ever afters that renew wonder to the imagination, filling the heart and lungs with laughter and incredulity. This psalm is like a child discovering for the first time the blissful ending of an adventure book. And whether or not they believe the story to be real, they're left with this lingering sense of delight and awe, and they go on retelling the tale to one another, reliving the surprise, spreading rumors perhaps of miraculous possibilities for you and me for the world. So then in verses 2 to 3, the surrounding nations, they hear of this rumor, news of God's power in Israel, and they are left in either terror or in curious pursuit of the same. And together with Israel, they testify alongside God's people that the Lord has done great things for them. Everyone is glad, everyone is glad, everyone's smiling and laughing with this lingering sense of delight. Then there's the second meeting to those who dream, right? There's a double meaning. The second meaning is that even as dreams do tantalize us with the lingering sense of delight, it is soon followed with a lasting sense of loss, a lasting sense of loss, the prolonged sensation of hollow and vacant sadness was just a dream. That was just a dream. It's gone. Dreams are elusive, right? They're fleeting, easily forgotten, having no realness or substance to grab hold of them so you can keep them somehow in your pocket or frame them and hang them on your wall or bottle them up and you can open it up for a dark and rainy day. You can't do that to a dream. And even those few dreams that impress somehow upon your memory, they're like a drop of water on a hot element. It sizzles, evaporates, not even a second. And it leaves behind this inscrutable stain in your heart, your mind, and you're disappointed. Now, in Scripture, the ancient prophets described the successes, the enjoyment, the pleasures of the wicked and evil people like those who dream. They boast and enjoy for a moment, and then it's gone like that, as someone just waking up from a nap couldn't even remember it. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 126 feels the same way 
not about the pleasures of life or the enjoyment that they've had, but about the ancient stories of God's salvation, about the memories of divine deliverance that they're somehow trying to remember. Could these be true? They seem like dreams, they're too fleeting to grab hold of. These are fairy tales, too fantastical for grown-ups, just stories for children, only words in a scroll, words in your mobile apps, words in a page, just words. As the psalmist tries to remember and dream of the happy moments of salvation, they're savoring just for a moment this lingering sense of delight and like the joy of harvest time. But then that soon quickly follows this feeling of fading, that they're left with this lasting sense of loss. This can't be real. This prolonged sense of hollow and vacant sadness. They're left alone, afraid, and they're trying now to hum and whistle this fading tune, this, this memory of this song that they've remembered. And they're trying to hum it, whistle it in the darkness of night. But the psalmist continues humming this fading tune in the only way they know. They do in prayer. They're whistling, they're humming this fading tune in prayer, the second half of the psalm. Now we'll request. Now the At first, the psalmist tried to remember, but it only seemed like a dream. And then they make this urgent request to God in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. See, as the psalmist could not grab hold of this elusive, this fleeting dream of salvation, they then reach for the only thing, person they know, to, to be real, to be solid. God himself, who is ever true believes to be ever real, ever solid, ever present, ever unchanging. God is not like this dream they believe that fades and disappoints. God is the one who makes, in fact, dreams of salvation come true, who makes reality from impossibility. He's the only one who turns night into day, who bears the fruit of joy out of sadness, who makes alive the dying and the dead, like the flash floods of Negev, right? The Negev is this desert region in southern Israel, and the psalmist now makes this request from God for this sudden and surprising salvation like the annual floods flowing into this region that suddenly transforms the desert into an oasis overnight. The psalmist here is requesting for a sudden and surprising salvation like like the suddenness and surprise of the Passover, How that came so quickly, like the overthrow of Jericho with singing and shouts of the trumpet, the walls came tumbling down, like Gideon defeating the Midianites with just 300 men, like the angelic rescue of Jerusalem from the Assyrian king Sennacherib, or like the return from exile just by the decree of Persian king Cyrus. It was just like a snap, sudden and surprising like streams in the Negev. Do it quickly, God, the psalmist cries. Do it quickly. But then while in mid-prayer, the psalmist realized something. They realized something, even as they prayed for this sudden, quick, a surprising salvation for a quick fix. They realized that salvation is not always sudden. 
Miracles do not always come in a snap. The psalmist realized that more often than not, and this is true even of us, that we must wait. We must wait for salvation. We cannot expedite miracles. We cannot rush anyone, any person that we love. We cannot even rush God. In verses 5 to 6, now the psalmist, remember he began with the grain fields. He goes back now to the grain fields and dreams again of harvest time. But this time the psalmist remembers harvest time differently. They're not focused on the joy, the laughter, the lingering sense of delight. The psalmist remembers the toil, the agony of days without rain, without sun, carrying through the weeks for signs of life. And now on their shoulders is now the yoke of grief, the gruel of sweat as they step onto the field that lay fallow, unplowed, frosted over, hardened and lifeless. They've gone out to that field weeping with tears only to sow into the ground. More often than not, We must wait for salvation. Waiting can be such a nuisance in our instant society, right? But waiting can also be unbearable. Unbearable. Especially when we are in anguish, in chronic pain, and with disability, with disease, with financial trouble, holding depression, loneliness, having an answered prayer, Relationship breakdown, loss of career, loss of home, in the middle of a full-scale invasion, not knowing when and where the missile will hit. Will there be salvation? Will we again see the, and reap the whiteness of the fields? Will, will we again bring our sheaves into the barn? Will we again present our loaves of bread at the temple? Will there be a next year? In Jerusalem. Now, in the anguish of waiting against all hope, the psalmist still believes that their sorrow, their tears, they have germinating potential, like as though they were grains of wheat, as though seeds were sowing. You know, these tears, these sorrows of seeds have dried up and shriveled and dropped to the ground, but somehow, once planted, they somehow, in some way, they still grow. There's fruit that comes out of it. This is, this is a holy mystery. See, even now, growing from the earth remains a holy mystery, right? Even with modern science, we cannot completely control or direct the process. We do all we can, but like all, all farmers do, we cannot avoid having to wait. Farmers have to wait. They still have to wait. And we, with our sorrows, our sadness, our grief and pain, we have to wait in them, even though it's unbearable. We cannot completely control or direct how these will all turn out. Like seeds, some will grow and bear fruit. But some, like seeds, will also just be in the ground and bear nothing. We can't choose which ones should grow. Or which which ones would not, we wish we could. But in all of that, we must all wait. But 
to the degree that we can do anything about it. We can plant. We can sow. We can sow our tears, our sorrows into the fertile soil of God's unchanging and unending promise. And that is now an act of faith. We can do something about it. And that is an act of faith. We can believe. We can do something as we wait. See, every time we bend down low on our knees or even on all fours if we must to the solid ground of God's promise, that is an act of faith. Every time we groan and sigh and scream of prayer, we pour out from inside of us as though pouring water onto the hardened and cracked earth. That is an act of faith. Every anguished moment of waiting, the forbearance of unanswered prayer, the tearing of silent tears for the God who promised to show up like tomorrow's sun, that is a behavior, an act of faith. For every sorrow and tears that we sow into the soil of God's promise, we can only have faith in that same God who alone gives the growth. Who alone gives the growth. We can dig, we can plow, we can water, we can plant, we can wait, we can agonize, but only God gives the growth. And in Him we trust. That too is a holy mystery. And we enter into that. We step onto the field by faith. Now six days before his final Passover feast, Jesus, he grew heavier with anguish as he waited, waited and waited, waiting all of his life as it were, in fact, right? Anticipating his fateful death on the cross. And then as the time, the hour grew near, he began describing himself to his friends. That he's like a grain. This, that is by design and nature to be buried in the ground. To die. For unless he dies, he says, he will abide alone. He will remain alone, bearing no fruit, bearing no future, bearing no hope, bearing no salvation. And then on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus, in tears and in sweats of blood, he begged his father for his own salvation. Father, take this cup from me. Save me. But in faith, as an act of faith, the Son of God gave himself over to his Father's will. Then he became for all people the seed that bore our sins, our sorrows, and our tears to die and be buried underground. And then on the third day, the Christ seed, somehow, some way, we don't know how, it's a holy mystery burst forth, bearing the first fruits of the new creation, producing seeds of his gospel to be sown all over time and space. And this same Jesus resurrected will be back here to reap the harvest of his inheritance, bringing all the church into his father's house, into his father's barn to present before him a perfected offering, a perfected presentation with everyone and everything laughing together in endless joy and dreams that never fade in the harvest time of a world born again with an everlasting sense of delight, which cannot be robbed, cannot be shaken, can be taken, cannot be taken away from us ever again. You know, in another podcast interview, Jane Marchevsky shared about her journey of faith as she struggled with terminal cancer, and on top of that, going through divorce with her husband. Five years, who left her 
or in her words, abandoned her while she was still recovering. Now, Markevsky then came face to face with death and divorce in the darkness of her night. She waited in anguish for her miracle, pleading to God for her salvation. She described falling into despair the longer she waited. But it was in the midst of that despair, of her despair, that God somehow, some way, showed up. And she recounted being confronted by her bitterness and unforgiveness of her ex-husband. And as she was brought to this miraculous experience that she could describe of being able to forgive him. But in regards to her illness, Markchevsky said this, I believe that God can heal in one instant. I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there was something God was growing in the field that is me. And if God had pulled up all these hardships too soon, it would have also pulled up along all these miracles that he did in my spirit. And in reflection of her own stage name, Nightbird, a nightbird singing in the dark, Marchevsky said this finally, I want, I want to be that way even when I am in the middle of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end. I want to be the bird that sings in anticipation of the good things that I trust are coming. And she believed this even to the end. She was 31 years old when she died two Saturdays ago on February 19th having inspired millions of Americans and people all over the world by her embodying hope and despair, faith in the anguish of waiting, and singing, even in the midst of her own darkness of night. And as far as she had shared, Marchevsky remained in faith, believing in her Lord Jesus Christ, who will yield unimagined goodness out of her pain, her sorrow, even out of her death. She had sown and planted her tears, believing that she will reap life and joy eternal promised to her by God. And she believed that, even to the end. Do we believe this for ourselves, for those we love, for this world? As for us, though we sow our own tears amidst the warfare and tumult of this age in the changes and chances of our own life let us then wait we are called to wait but in faith patiently for the salvation of God for by faith in him who endured the cross for its future joy we shall then reap in him alongside him with unfading laughter at last even as we now sing in the darkness of our times And then the sun shall rise again. It always does, right? The sun shall rise again. The harvest shall spring upon us suddenly, surprisingly, like the streams in the Negev. And we will be together with all God's saints to bring our sheaves home before the presence of God as a perfected presentation and offering of ourselves. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. 
please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services. 